the joint assembly of European Union interpreters representing the collective voted unanimously to stop remote interpreting. Their goal was to develop high-quality machine translation capabilities for these low-resource languages. And welcome everyone and welcome back to the pod of Slater. Hi there, Anna. Hi, Florian. We need to catch up on like what, nearly a month of news, Anna. Yeah, it's been a while and a lot has been happening. A lot has been happening. I think the last one we did on June 17th, uh, so episode 122. Uh, sorry for that. Busy times. You know, we had SlaterCon Remote, uh, great conference, etc. So uh, we're trying to get you over the summer with some some news. So today we're going to talk a bit about the kind of RSI, Remote Simultaneous Interpreting Pushback, that's been happening at, you know, two uh, rather large organizations. And then we're going to talk about another large organization called Meta, the former Facebook, and what they're doing in machine translation. Going to speak a little bit about subtitling and dubbing uh, and just this really strong growth that this is uh, part of the industry is experiencing, talking about Disney and robo voices, and then uh, closing in on just very briefly talking about Zoom. Um, so RSI, huh, Anna? Getting a lot of opposition. Yeah, it's uh, causing a lot of uh, discussion. A lot of discussion and earache and headache and all kinds of other aches. So kind of started um, the started out with a publication, like an article in a, um, in a UN publication called UN Today. Um, and we, we read that it's probably about a month ago. Um, and uh, a couple of interpreters there kind of pushed back really hard saying that uh, mainly just the sound quality is, is not good. It's causing like issues with, you know, uh, just like unreliable audio, like, um, uh, kind of levels, audio levels. Right. So, you know, you may even get kind of hearing damage and things like that. So they pushed back on that. And then the UN actually decided to reduce the number of weekly meetings, interpreters had to service from seven to five and cutting meeting length from three to two hours. So they, there was, uh, they did obtain a result. We didn't really follow that particular uh, thread of the story further. Um, just, uh, you know, spoke about that article that was written. And then like about a three or four days later, there was this uh, tweet uh, and, and there was this whole discussion starting on Twitter around an interpreter strike at the European Parliament kind of back at the end of June. Uh, and on June 23rd, 2022, the Joint Assembly of UN, uh, European Union interpreters representing the collective uh, voted unanimously to stop remote interpreting. Uh, that's, as, uh, that's as big as it gets. Yeah, uh, quite an action. Quite the action there. So uh, they were seeking kind of improved work uh, after they uh, their negotiations seeking work uh, improved work condition failed. Kind of they adopted that resolution to go on strike. And um, I'm quoting it from the article. The group asked interpreters to read out the following a message whenever a remote interpreter is scheduled to intervene or takes the floor for at least two weeks. And the message is. The interpreters are on strike. They will not interpret remote interventions due to potentially harmful effect of non-compliant sound on health and the lack of adapted working conditions. They did make exception for uh, Ukrainian speakers in the light of the current situation in that country. Uh, and so there was uh, a tweet. There were even uh, members of the European Parliament um, showing solidarity with them, with their what they call like industrial action. Uh, and so there was like a, a video posted of a, a couple of gentlemen, like, you know, taking sides with the interpreter and saying that it's their right to do that. So I think generally 
the problem really centers around the quality of the audio. Um, when people dial in from all kinds of locations with all kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of like levels of like loudness or it's just hard to, um, it's hard to control that. Uh, so that was one uh, threat that, uh, that really pushed back. And then there's also in the European Parliament, that was not at the European Union, but the European Parliament was a problem with the use of non-accredited interpreters. I don't want to go into that. I don't think uh, we researched it well enough to comment on that. But the uh, the audio issue really seems to be a, a, a you know a big issue. I also spoke briefly uh, to Jan Rausch last time about uh, RSI, and you know he does say that that there may be issues, but he also qualified that of course that there's a lot of uh, positives coming out of RSI as well. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Like generally. Well, the interpreters have a fairly clear message, I think. Um, one, they want to be able to do their job well. And two, they need to be able to do it in conditions that are not going to damage their hearing. So the poor quality of the sound, I think it's particularly with uh, speakers who are calling in, as you said, um, has an impact on both of those on both of those factors. And I think one of the um, points that they raised was that the sound quality is not in line with um, ISO requirements, so that that gives a kind of benchmark for them to to measure against. And I know that during COVID, um, there were some concessions or some adaptations around the length of meetings um, due to those um, the poorer sound quality. But now that um, meetings are more frequent, they're kind of going back to the original lengths, and so this is having having an impact. And I can't remember what the percentage was, but you know, a certain percentage of um, a high percentage of interpreters reporting problems with their hearing. So, um, yeah, it's a conversation that needs to be, it's an important conversation that they need to have with the European Parliament. 100%. It seems interest seems on the surface of it without like digging deep and doing any research, seems like something that should be solvable, right? I mean, you just have some kind of limiter that, you know, obviously doesn't let any kind of crazy noises through, maybe certain frequencies, level it out. I mean, for, for our podcast here, you know, we're, we're recording it on, on an, um, on an, well, just a podcast recording platform. And then we, we, uh, edit it in, in a tool called the script. And then there's just like one button, like it's called studio quality that like magically transforms it into, uh, what I hope is a great, great audio. So I wonder why, uh, there shouldn't, I mean, there should be some tech that kind of levels this out. Yeah, we'll uh, follow up on that, see where the strike's going, and uh, definitely do a follow-up piece in the next couple of weeks. Now, one company that really got um, a messaging uh, figured out to the public is Meta. Uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, personally taking to his uh, to his Facebook and posting about what he called a breakthrough. And we, of course, whenever we hear breakthrough in the context of machine translation, you know, we put the, uh, we put it in, in quotation marks. So tell us more about that. What's happening? What's the breakthrough? Is it a breakthrough or is it at least something uh, noteworthy? I think it's definitely a, a very important milestone or it seems to be. Um, so Meta AI has released this uh, new AI model, which they call NLLB 200. And NLLB, which is really hard to say, <laughs> stands for no language left behind. Um, so they're homing in on these low resource languages and um, seeing what they can do to get high-performing machine translation uh, in these languages. And of course, it's always been a big challenge. There's very little data, which means that it's hard to train the machine uh, translation models 
to perform well. Um, so in terms of whether or not it's a breakthrough, what they're saying is that their goal was to develop high quality machine translation capabilities for these low resource languages. And they're saying that they succeeded uh, in this goal to some extent, at least. So they reported a 44% improvement in uh, BLUR scores and um, quoting the authors of the, the paper, um, they said that this lays important groundwork towards realizing a universal translation system. Um, so it's a, they've open sourced the model. Um, it's 50 billion parameters. So it's a lot smaller than those large language models, those kind of like Swiss army knife <laughs> language models that do everything. It's more of a very targeted, specialized model, 50 billion parameters, just focused on these 200 languages. Um, and yeah, it does look like, it does look like a milestone because it, of, of course, it's been very difficult for speakers of these languages to access online content in, in their native or preferred languages. So if there is a machine translation model capable of doing this, then it really opens up the possibility of getting a lot of that online content um, into those languages, which particularly for uh, Africa and Asian, Asian languages. Don't you think they're like the end goal? Because we also covered a lot of their speech trend, like quote unquote speech translation efforts, et cetera. Don't you think the end goal here is to like you and I meeting in the metaverse and being able to like speak and it doesn't matter what language we speak and it just, you know, interprets live? <laughs> yeah, I think this seems to be Zuckerberg's goal. Uh, he mentioned several times that when they talked about this model, they said it will provide capabilities uh, current capabilities, but they're also looking forward to the future. So the future for them being the metaverse and they have this vision of yeah, everyone being able to meet and to communicate in either speech or text and to communicate in, in any language um, using, well, depending on these, um, these multilingual models. It gets so philosophical and cultural and, you know, uh, I mean, yes, translation, like the, the translation of the content or the words is one part, but then like, I mean, there's just, there's so many layers to this that would make this vision very, very hard to achieve. Um, and so the, the whole thing is open source, right? Yeah, the whole thing is open source. Um, so it's available on GitHub and they've made everything available. So you can download the data set, you can download the encoder, you can download the final model itself. Um, you can also download the benchmark that they used for quality evaluation. So they created a new benchmark, which, which they call Flores 200. And to create that, they actually worked with professional translators and what they call quality assurance agencies, which were pro probably language service providers, to create translations in those languages, which then served as the benchmark to evaluate the output of the, the model quality. So all of that is available uh, for use and adoption by the research community. And they're kind of, they've kind of put out a call for people to find applications um, for the model. So they're providing up to 200,000 US dollars worth of grants to nonprofit organizations for real world applications of the NLLB 200 model. That's a bit of an incentive right there. Cool. Um, well, let's see where this goes. I mean, we did cover so many of these uh, breakthroughs and uh, it's just, it feels like there's always a bit of a disconnect between kind of the D B2B, you know, uh, content side, B2B kind of LSP servicing big enterprise uh, and then this whole like research world and all these open sourcings of specific uh, 
models here. This one's very big, and of course, it got a lot of press. Uh, I think, I don't know, a couple of hundred articles have been written about it, I'm sure. Um, anyway, we picked it up, uh, and um, it seems like a biggish piece of news. So on the media localization side, things are going really well. I, I know there's this line of thought that I keep hearing from certain parts of the industry that it's not as rosy as portrayed. It's, uh, you know, certain subtitlers are struggling, etc. I mean, this is anecdotal. What we can follow here with Slater is just the hard facts, which are financial results, right? And so when I'm looking at these financial results, I'm seeing just a, a very strongly growing industry. We just followed, uh, covered uh, Zoo Digital like we regularly do because they're publicly listed that can disclose all this. So they basically grew their full year revenue um, by 78%. I mean, you know, nearly doubling uh, to $70 million and their EBITDA, the, the earnings grew by 48, uh, sorry, 84% to uh, $8 million margin widens, etc. You know, they're saying uh, they won a few nice contracts with big streamers. So, uh, and then Generally, they're saying that they're seeing more growth um, with, because there's work related to ongoing territory launches of major streaming platforms, right? We, we spoke about it many times on the pod. Sure, Netflix is um, uh, having, you know, major challenges in, its, in, in growing its business, but those major challenges often result from all these other guys going, getting into the space, which all need media localization services. So, um, uh, so yeah, for the industry at large, it's great. The, uh, um, the CEO, Sue Digital CEO, um, said that as well as processing of a significant uh, volume of new original titles that have been completed and adapted into an increasing number of languages for uh, global distribution. So just generally very, very good news, which, of course, also means more competition. And they're getting more competition among other uh, players, uh, Keyword Studios, the, the game localization company, is now talking a lot more openly about entering MediaLock. We covered this like a couple of years ago that there's some plans and they, you know, they didn't hide it, but they never really uh, added a lot of color to it. But now the CFO, John Hauk, shared some of the plans, how they uh, want to expand into these adjacent markets, including uh, going much more heavily into the film and TV space. And he said that it feels like a very natural adjacency to us. Uh, he also said that dubbing and subtitling for media is, quote unquote, essentially the same as for games. And, uh, you know, that he, sh he said that they've been quietly building out their dubbing and subtitling capability over the past few years. And now they are at, I think, something like 16 million euro in subbing and dubbing. Uh, subbing and dubbing revenues for in 2021. So sizable business. I mean, that, you know, 16 million euros, um, it's quite, quite, quite a good figure. Yeah, um, it's a quite sizable uh, to, to grow kind of in the background, but it looks like they're really starting to turn their attention uh, more strongly to that as an adjacent service. 100%. And I mean, they know how to handle very complex production workflows from the gaming side, right? So having assets, having studios, having, you know, kind of the whole, of course, kind of multimedia setup is nothing new to them. So it feels like this is, a, they're going to be a very strong competitor. Also, they're going to buy companies. That's what they're saying. They're saying, we're looking at some of the acquisition opportunities to build out that footprint further so we, we can create a one-stop shop for localization at TV and film space. And I mean, and they have the capital to buy, you know, one or two or three of the big players out there. Um, 
you know, not not the top two, but definitely uh, a couple of the big ones. So, uh, yeah, stay tuned for definitely more subtitling and dubbing news from Keywords Studios. And uh, yeah, we did cover the Zoom launching finally that translation feature that they had been promising for a while. We haven't tested it yet because it's only for business users, right? Yeah. Um, so it's is it so it's real time translation and multilingual captions. Um, for business users only. For business users only. I'm so tempted to like upgrade our account and just start playing around with it. Uh, I think it's 10 languages now, simplified Chinese, Dutch, English, French, German, Italian, Japanese, Korean, Russian, Spanish, and U Ukrainian. There you go. Um, yeah, I mean, the multilingual captioning is not revolutionary, but like anything that even remotely would work in terms of real-time translation would be, um, yeah, it would be big news and we should probably test it out. The article we wrote, it got like a thousand likes on uh, on LinkedIn because uh, I think all the Zoom people liked it. So uh, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, it was uh, it was a big launch. Uh, let's stay with with film and media. Sorry for this kind of brief interruption there with Zoom, but like you covered Disney experimenting with synthesized voices because maybe whatever the talent crunch. Like there's so much demand. So <laughs> what's Disney doing in in, in uh, synthetic voice? Yeah, so it looks like Disney's kind of experimenting with not obviously not replacing human dubbing, but kind of augmenting uh, human dubbing with these synthesized voice capabilities. Um, and they're doing this in a couple of different areas. Um, so we covered this in Australia, I think a couple of weeks ago. Um, so Disney partnered with a voice cloning startup called Respeecher. This was back in 2020. And they did this to feature a synthetic voice for a character in the Star Wars miniseries, The Mandalorian. They wanted to create a, a voice, a synthetic voice for the younger version of the character, Luke Skywalker. So they worked with this company for that purpose. And then again, this year, they've partnered with the same startup to use voice uh, synthesis technology for the miniseries, Obi-Wan Kenobi, to enhance the voiceover uh, for the character of Darth Vader. Um, it's unclear how much of that dialogue was synthesized. It may have just been used, this, the technology may have just been used to enhance the voiceovers which were provided by 91-year-old um, actor uh, James Earl Jones. So it looks like, yeah, they're experimenting with how um, voice synthesis can be used in these kind of creative situations where they may need to modify the existing voice or create a younger version of the same, the same voice. Um, and their competitor, Paramount, has done a similar thing. They've partnered with London-based tech startup called Synantic um, to, pose a, a, to solve a similar challenge posed by the uh, this year's film, Top Gun. Um, so in this case, uh, actor Val Kilmer, his voice has um, unfortunately suffered some damage due to throat cancer. So the idea was to reprise his original role in the sequel using a voice that Synantic had generated for him. Um, yeah, so it looks like for the moment they've Disney's mainly been outsourcing these synthesized voice services, but there are some signs that they're looking to bring more expertise in-house. Um, they had an open role in May of this year for a VP of localization, and um, those the responsibilities for that role include creating processes for new systems and technology, including the use of uh, synthesized voices, as well as, of course, AI and machine translation. Wow. Yeah. I need, I need to go back to, um, the Mandalorian and Obi-Wan Kenobi. I, I don't even know where to start. Like it, it, 
it suggests it to me when I open Disney Plus, but I don't know which I should watch first, like where it is in the kind of timeline. And uh, yeah. It's getting complicated with all the spin-offs. It's getting complicated, <laughs> right? Like, uh, is it earlier? Is it after? Like, where are we in the empire? And uh, we're not, or, or the Republic. So uh, yeah, plus uh, it's probably still a little early to watch it with my kids. So maybe I'll give it another couple of years. All right, uh, lots of news, and we'll uh, try to give you another um, uh, news segment in, in a couple of weeks as we're heading into the summer and people are taking their well-deserved breaks, at least here in the beautiful continent of Europe. All right, catch you soon.